Thank you, Dave. We had a uh, little problem with the, uh, the clip-on mic there, so I'm switching to the pulpit mic. Hope you won't be too disappointed. I was going to jump around and no, I wasn't, but <clears throat> um, so hope you, hopefully you can all hear me. Um, so I'm very privileged to be able to uh, open God's Word uh, with you this morning. Um, Dave uh, read for us from Genesis, and, and the sermon today is going to cover uh, that's that story from different perspectives. Uh, so it starts in Genesis. We're going to look at, it, at the book of Malachi where he refers to that story, and then we'll be in, in Romans where Paul also refers to that story. So if you could open your, your Bibles to Malachi chapter 1, uh, in your pew Bible, that's uh, on page 1134. And if you can do two things at once, if you can also open to Romans 9, we're going to get there at the end of the sermon. In your pew Bibles, that's 1347. So Malachi chapter 1, and then Romans 9. And I think it'll be very helpful for you if you can have those in front of you so you can refer to them as we're talking about them. Before I start, let's, let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, I, I thank you for this opportunity to share your word. And Father, I just pray that... Uh, I would be a vessel communicating your truth, Lord, that your word would go forth this morning, and I pray that it would impact all of our lives, Lord, as it has impacted mine as I've studied and prepared for this sermon. We just ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's August. The end of the summer is right around the corner. I know it's kind of hard to believe. It is for me. You know, I remember when I was a kid playing tennis ball, baseball on the street, swimming in the pool, taking trips to Jones Beach. I never wanted the summer to end. I never wanted September to come along with its school and homework and tests. I still enjoy summer, but the older I get, I've noticed that I definitely feel the heat more. You guys, any, any of you out there? Yeah, it just, it, it hurts more, right? Usually about mid-August, I start getting a little down. And it's not because September is coming because I noticed that my lawn is feeling the heat too, just like I am. That's because there's usually a two or three week dry spell around here in mid-August. I don't know if you've noticed that. Maybe some of you know what I'm talking about, especially if you don't have sprinklers for your lawn. What usually happens to your lawn in mid-August? Well, mine, you know, it, it's all beautiful and vibrant. There's soft grass, green grass in the spring, but around mid-August it all turns dry and brown and, well, it's crunchy. You mow the lawn, and I mow the lawn, just to cut down a few scraggly weeds. You know, there's a few that are growing. Those are the type that would probably, probably survive a nuclear holocaust. And when you're mowing the lawn, you're engulfed in a cloud of dust. Everything is just so dry, so dead. It's a little depressing for me, anyway. This morning, I want you to picture in your mind's eye for a moment a field of parched earth, even drier and dustier than my lawn in mid-August. Imagine a landscape that's totally parched, desiccated might be the technical term, totally parched by the blazing sun, a desert. Picture now distributed across that landscape, large clay vessels, pitchers, or terracotta flower pots set out on the ground. Every 50 or 100 yards or so, there's another pitcher or another pot. Most of them are empty, and they're cracked, and they're crumbling. They're so dry, they're just falling to pieces. Some are a little more than piles of dust. 
with a few clay shards poking out. But not all of the pots are in a state of decay. Every now and then, you notice a fully intact pot and something unusual. Coming down out of the sky and flowing right into this pot is a stream of water. The water fills the pot and is overflowing all around it in every direction. So there's a circular plot of well-watered earth surrounding the pot. And there's green grass and beautiful flowers springing up out of the ground around this pot. And as you survey the landscape, you can see other pots like this one. Other pots with green earth and colorful flowers against the backdrop of an otherwise desiccated desert. As we look into God's word this morning, I want you to keep this picture in mind. The pots represent people, you and me. The burning sun is the righteousness or the justice or the wrath of God. The parched earth and the crumbled pots are those who suffered the wrath of God or rejected God. The water is the mercy of God. The intact pots receiving the never-ending refreshing flow of God's mercy from heaven, these are vessels of God's mercy. These are Christians. And the green grass and the bright flowers are the blessings and the fruits that characterize a life lived under God's mercy. Let's read Malachi 1, 1 through 5, and we're going to explore foundational gospel truths that are, that are found here. And we're going to see how this picture of God's mercy and our condition emerge from this passage. So let me read this for you. Malachi 1, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob. But I have hated Esau, and I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom, that is Esau's descendants, say, we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down, and men will call them the wicked territory, and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. And your eyes will see this, and you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. To begin to understand what's going on here, I want to set the scene. When this message came to Malachi, it was about 430 years before the birth of Christ. The Israelites, that is Jacob's descendants, had returned to the land after 70 years of captivity in Babylon. Over the span of about 85 years, through the time of Haggai, Zephaniah, Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah, they had rebuilt the temple and rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. Under the leadership of Nehemiah, sometime in the 430s, the people had confronted and confessed their sins and covenanted with God to walk in God's law and to observe his commandments. On the one hand, you could make an argument that this was a time when things were looking up for the people of Israel. But despite the mercy and grace that God had shown the people in returning them to their land, the people did not honor the covenant that they had made. Only a couple of years after they had committed to quote-unquote walk in God's law, Malachi receives this message from the Lord. The message was that the community had become corrupt. People had turned aside from God's commandments and chosen to disobey them. They had become sorcerers, adulterers, oppressors of workers, oppressors of widows, and oppressors of orphans. They were people who turned away the alien in their midst. 
They had lost their fear of God, and they were doers of wickedness that were growing in strength. They had become arrogant, and in their arrogance, they continued in disobedience, testing God to see what they could get away with. God, for his part, chose not to instantly bring down the full weight of his judgment upon the people, but he was certainly not prospering them in their disobedience. The crops were poor, the fruits of the ground and of the vine were being destroyed. The land was drying up. And because of the people's sin, God no longer accepted the people's offerings. It was a time of spiritual dryness as well. But God had not turned his back on his people. He sent Malachi, whose name actually means messenger, with a message. And the message, in short, was this. And I'm summarizing. God says, I have loved you, yet you have sinned against me and become corrupt and are not honoring me. But I will not let you continue in sin forever. I will send my messenger, and he will purify you, and I will bring judgment upon the people. I will burn the arrogant to the ground, but I will raise up and heal those who fear me. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't want to be among those that are getting burned up. So who is it exactly? Who will crumble under the crushing force of God's judgment? Who will be a dry, crumbling pile of dust and shards? And who will be raised up? Who will receive that never-ceasing stream of mercy from heaven? This morning, I want to look at these first five verses here in Malachi, and I want to focus on three bedrock gospel truths that emerge, and then reflect upon their implications. The three truths that I see here are, hopefully in your bulletin you have an outline, Uh, three truths are, number one, there is a definite distinction, a definite distinction. Number two, there is a disastrous default, a disastrous default. And number three, there is a divine discrimination, a divine discrimination. Let's begin with there is a a definite distinction. And what I mean by that is people are divided into two categories, those God loves and those he hates. We saw that in Malachi 1, 2, and 3. I have loved you, says the Lord. But Israel answers back, how have you loved us? And then God says, was not Esau Jacob's brother? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. How do these words strike you this morning? How do you receive them? I bet the first part of the passage, the parts that say, I have loved you, I have loved Jacob, those are easy to receive. They're comforting words, like comfort food. They go down real easy, and they bring you peace and calm. But then Malachi, or really God himself, these are God's words, right? Malachi 1.1 says, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. God, if you will, has to go and ruin this nice message. And he says, I have hated Esau. Esau, I have hated. These words are difficult to receive. The word hate, I think especially nowadays, is disquieting, upsetting. It sets our teeth on edge. It churns our stomach. After all, doesn't the Apostle John tell us that God is love? Doesn't he also write that God so loved the world that he sent his son to die to save the world? Is this the same God who says, I have hated Esau? Well, yes. And we ought not soft-pedal the word hate here. We can just take a look at the word itself. Malachi uses that same word again later in his book, or I should say God uses it. 
um, in, verse, in uh, verse 16 of chapter 2, where God says, I hate divorce. I hate divorce. And he's in the middle of a, a condemnation of men who dealt tre- treacherously with their wives. Now, that's a topic for another sermon. But the point here is that God doesn't mean, well, I sort of kind of don't like men dealing treacherously with their wives. I sort of kind of don't really like divorce. I don't quite like divorce as much as I like marriage. What he means is, I love the covenant of marriage, and I hate divorce. And that's the same word that's used in Esau, I have hated. We can also look at the context here in Malachi 1, where God explains very clearly what he means by hate. There in verses 3 and 4, God says, I have made his mountains a desolation, right? They may rebuild, but I will tear down, and men will call them the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. God is saying that he has desolated the, the descendants of Esau, and he will continue to desolate them, and he will always desolate them. He will be angry with them forever. Forever is a long, long time. Does that sound harsh? I guess it is. But though the language is strong, it should not be surprising. All through scriptures, this message is repeated. There are those whom God loves and those he does not. We could start with Abel and Cain, right? In Genesis 4, we read, And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering he had no regard. There's Isaac and Ishmael. Even before Ishmael was born, though he was able to be Abraham's firstborn, God said that he would live at enmity with all those around him. But of Isaac, God said, I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant. There's Jacob and Esau, whose story we read this morning and referred to here in Malachi. There's the people of Israel and the people of Egypt. I mean, which neighborhood would you have wanted to live in when the houses in Egypt were filling with frogs and flies and gnats and darkness and death, but the houses in Goshen were clean and bright and safe? There are lots more examples that we could mention. And I know I'm painting here with a very broad brush, and I know that all of these have their different backstories and, and some mitigating circumstances, and I'm certainly not saying here that all of the people on the wrong side of the story received the everlasting condemnation of God. But all these stories paint a picture at some level that ultimately there really are two kinds of people, those God favors and those he doesn't, those he loves and those he hates, those who receive his mercy and those who don't. Jesus affirms this, that in the end, people will be divided. Jesus spoke of the great divide between those he knew and those he did not know, between the sheep and the goats, between those who hear the words, come you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world, and those who will hear the words, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and for his angels. We see this distinction here at the beginning of Malachi. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. And if you flip over a page or two, you can see that Malachi carries it right through to the end of his book. If you look at chapter 4 in verse 1, it says, Behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff, and the day is coming that will set them ablaze, so that, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch, But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness 
will rise with healing in its wings. For some of us, this may sound like a really basic truth, but it's an important truth. It's a foundational truth. It's a gospel truth. You see the semicolon there back between Malachi 1, 2 and Malachi 1, verse 3? There's a semicolon. I have loved Jacob, semicolon, but I have hated Esau. That semicolon represents a definite distinction with eternal consequences. That semicolon means serious business. You absolutely, positively don't want to see your name on the right-hand side of that semicolon. So there is a definite distinction. There's also a disastrous default. And what I mean by that is, apart from God's mercy, everyone is doomed. Some of us may be squirming in our seats. God hates. I'm still thinking, how can that be? What does that mean? The more I meditated on what God is saying here in Malachi, the more I began to realize that I shouldn't be amazed that God says he hates Esau. I should be amazed that he says he loves Jacob. Let me say that again. I should, we shouldn't be amazed that God says he hates Esau. We should be amazed that he says he loves Jacob. What this passage here in Malachi is all about is God's mercy. God's not giving Jacob and his descendants what they deserved. God's withholding the penalty and punishment due to the nation of Israel. You guys all know what a default is, right? I mean, when I was a kid, it was different. I, I, I didn't know at all what a default was. When I was my kid's age, I'm sure I didn't know. I think the first time I encountered the word, <clears throat> it was in a verb form, and it was in a financial context, you know, as in someone defaulted on a loan. But somewhere in the late 80s and early 90s, as computers took off and, and later all kinds of electronic devices, we all had to learn the adjective and noun forms, a default setting, or just a default. Right? Everyone knows what a default is nowadays. Common word. Every feature on your computer, on your tablet, your phone, it has a default, right? A default is what your device does if you don't flip a switch or click a button or enter a number to tell your device to do otherwise. If you don't tell it to do something else, it's going to do the default. And I had an example of this just recently. I finally, just finally, got a smartphone a couple of weeks ago. Now, I'm not a heavy smartphone user or texter, so I didn't think much about it when, among those early days, the phone didn't ring, and I didn't get any text alerts either. But then I got home, and I noticed I missed a couple of calls, and I missed a couple of texts. And I started poking around in the settings on the phone, and I found a feature called, quote-unquote, easy mode. The easy mode feature allows you to mute incoming calls and alarms by just turning the, the phone face down. The default for that feature was on. It turned out that that day I had had the phone face down on my desk all day. So it never rang. If I had not found that setting and not understood that I needed to either switch it off or leave my phone face up, it would never have rung. What God is telling Israel here in Malachi, and what we all need to understand when God says, I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau, is that in mankind's relationship with God, there is a default setting. What I mean by that is that if God doesn't do something extraordinary, if God doesn't expressly step into the situation and purpose to love you and grant you mercy, you are by default in the Esau I have hated category. You are on the right-hand side of that semicolon. 
Here's how I get this idea from this passage. Follow, we have to follow the flow of the conversation. I have loved you, the Lord says to Israel. The nation of Israel is not so sure. Things aren't going particularly well for them, and it sure doesn't feel like God loves them. How have you loved us? They ask in Malachi 1, verse 2. How have you loved us? And God's response, this might strike you a little strange, God's response, how have I loved you, is, well, look at what I've done to Esau. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, God says, yet I have loved Jacob, I have hated Esau. I have hated Esau, and I have made his mountains a desolation. And men will call them the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. And then God says, your eyes will see this, and you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. Does that strike you as, as an odd answer to Israel's question? The more I thought about it, it struck me as odd. And I thought about it some more. And I realized God is not saying something along the lines of, look at how badly I've treated Esau. Doesn't that make you happy? Doesn't Esau's fate make you want to jump up and shout and praise my name? That's not at all what he's saying. What he's saying is something more like this. You think you have it rough? No, you don't. See, I love you. You are the sons of Jacob, the children of Israel, my chosen people. How can you tell? Well, take a look at Esau. See how I stripped him of his inheritance? See how I have destroyed Edom, the nation of Esau's descendants? You, Israel, children of Jacob, you disobeyed me, and yes, I allowed your nation to be torn in two, invaded and conquered, and yes, I allowed your people to be taken into captivity. But you deserved all that. You deserved worse. You deserved what Edom got. But look, because I loved you, I allowed you to rebuild. You've rebuilt your temple. You're worshiping me again. I'm giving you opportunity after opportunity. Repent. It says in Malachi 3.7, return to me, and I will return to you. But look at Edom. I brought them low. They might think they will rebuild, but I will level them to the ground again and again. They will be known as the people toward whom I am indignant forever. That, God is saying, that's the default setting. So God's answer to how have you loved us is, you can tell that I love you because you are not getting the default setting. Despite your repeated sin, you have not been forsaken by the Lord. Despite your unrepentant hearts, you have not received the full and forever wrath of God. That's why when the children of Jacob look at the children of Esau, their response should be, the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. Because God did not rain down destruction upon them, but instead has showered them with mercy upon mercy. He has spared them from what they should have received, what all humanity is due by default, the righteous wrath of God. Think for a moment about the backstory here, the story of Jacob and Esau that we read this morning. Yes, Esau despised his birthright. He sold it for a swallow of lentil stew and some bread and water. Everybody knows that. But did Jacob value the birthright any more than Esau? Jacob, after all, fixed the price. In so doing, he devalued the birthright to the same extent as his brother. And later, when it came time to receive the blessing from their father, Isaac, part of the story we didn't read this morning, Jacob engaged in conspiracy and deceit, right? He lied to his father's blind face. Did either of them, Esau or Jacob, deserve the birthright? 
Did either of them deserve their father's blessing? Did either of them deserve God's love? No. But God stepped in, and God showed mercy. He chose to show mercy to Jacob. He stripped Esau of his inheritance. That was what Esau deserved. He gave Esau's inheritance to Jacob. That was a blessing given to Jacob, despite Jacob's sin. Where God beat Edom down time and again, he rescued and revived Israel. Where he held Esau's sin against his descendants, he, he forgave Jacob, and he blessed his children for generations. God is reminding Israel of the covenant he made with Jacob here. God had promised to rescue a people and call them his own and bless them forever. And because God is, is true to his promises, Israel did not receive the default setting. In Malachi uh, chapter 3, verse 6, Malachi summarizes this idea. He says, For I, the Lord, do not change, God says. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. God remembered his promise and says, For I do not change. Therefore, you, sons of Jacob, are not consumed. So there is a disastrous default, and unless God specifically extends his mercy, his love, toward an individual, that individual is doomed. This is a foundational gospel truth. We all need to know and to affirm this, that apart from God's mercy, we stand condemned. All have sinned against God. The wages, the just deserts of our sin is death. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We are all dead in our trespasses and sins, but, but God turned off the default setting. What does it say in Ephesians 2.4? But, but God, being rich in mercy, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Those of us who are in Christ, we are those pots in the desert receiving never-ending streams of mercy from heaven. And we are not consumed by the blazing sun of God's righteousness. Instead, under his light, we grow and flourish and produce fruit. So there's a definite distinction. And there's a deadly default. And third, there is a divine discrimination. And what I mean by that is, it is God who chooses upon whom he showers his mercy. And here's where we come to Romans 9. Of the three truths here in Malachi, this may be the most difficult for us to wrap our brains around. The deadly default may be the easiest. Once, once we accept that God in his nature is righteous and just, that he must, therefore, by his nature, punish sin, once we accept that, it makes sense that the default setting for all humanity is condemnation and destruction. And it's not too hard to go from there to accepting that there is a definite distinction. We look around us and we see evil in the world, but we see that it is most certainly more concentrated in some individuals than others. And we can start to convince ourselves pretty easily that some people are more righteous than others, some are more wicked. But invariably, as we turn these ideas over in our minds, two perspectives begin to take shape. One I want to call anthropocentric or human-centered. The other perspective is theocentric or God-centered. The anthropocentric understanding is along the lines of God helps those who help themselves. As we read passages in the Bible like the one here in Malachi 4.1 that we just read, For behold, 
the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. As we read that kind of thing, it's easy for us, I think, to slip into the anthropocentric mode. It's easy to begin to think, if I'm not arrogant, and I don't do evil, and if I fear God's name, then God will show me mercy. But I'm here to tell you this morning that that is inverted, inverted thinking. It's backwards. We need to get us out of the center of our thinking, out of the center of our universe, and understand that it is God that is at the center. It's only because God has showered his mercy upon us that we can do true good works, that we can truly fear him, that we can truly stop being arrogant, that we can truly refrain from doing evil. It's only because God has showered his mercy upon us that we can do these things. And the reason I say this goes back to Jacob and to Esau. Look at Romans 9, verse 13. What does it say? Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Paul's quoting here Malachi. And in Romans 9, he's telling us what it means in a gospel context. Paul affirms that there is a definite distinction and there is a disastrous default. But Paul is also telling us here that there is a divine discrimination. It is God who chooses to love. It is God who chooses upon whom he showers his mercy. Paul is telling us that the universe is not anthropocentric. It is theocentric. And I certainly can't say it any more eloquently or any more clearly than Paul does. So here are the words of Paul, the words of the Lord, Romans 9, verses 10 through 16. And not only this, Paul writes, but there was Rebekah, that is Jacob and Esau's mom. There was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, Paul concludes, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. It does not depend on man, but on God who has mercy. You know, I believe there is free will, that people have minds and they're able to make choices. People can choose what they say and what they do. But I also believe that human will is corrupted by sin beyond the ability of human interventions. What I mean by that is there's no program you can follow, no mindfulness discipline you can submit to, no monastery you can seclude yourself in that can cleanse your will. In your natural state, your will is free to choose the right. You have that liberty, but you do not have the ability to choose what is truly right. Think about it, everything you do is tainted one way or another by sin. Even the good things, quote unquote, we do. We are by nature self-centered, self-serving, prideful, approval-seeking, 
satisfaction-seeking, even when we're doing good things. Malachi and Paul, when they point to Jacob and Esau, are pointing to the same gospel truth, that it is God who initiates, who reaches down and plucks out a chosen people, who calls them out from among the condemned, and who makes them new creations, able by his work in and through them to do the good works that he has already prepared in advance for them to do. It's Ephesians 2, 10. Back to the image I described at the beginning. It is God who chooses to shower his mercy upon pots of his choosing to save them from the blazing heat of that burning day of judgment and to cause growth and fruit in their lives. As Paul says a little further down in Romans 9, verses 22 through 24, that God, willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. That's the default setting. But he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not from among the Jews all only, but also from among the Gentiles. These are the truths of Malachi 1, the first five verses. They are the truths of the whole testimony of Scripture, and they are foundational gospel truths. What are we to do with these truths? Well, for those of us upon whom God has showered his mercy, we are called to respond as devoted disciples. We are called to respond as devoted disciples. If you are a believer, if you know that you know Jesus, and Jesus knows you, that you love God and God loves you, then you are one of the chosen of God. You have received mercy upon mercy, showered down upon you from heaven. That doesn't mean your life is perfect, not even close. We know that on this side of heaven, we will have trouble, sometimes profound trouble. But what it does mean is this. As a chosen one of God, God has opened your eyes to see, and he's opened your ears to hear. He's opened your mind to understand spiritual things and your heart to receive spiritual instruction. You once were lost, but now you're found. You once were dead. You once were dead, but now you're alive. You know, some scientists estimate that in the history of the earth, there have been more, uh, somewhere around 108 billion people that have ever lived on this planet. About 108 billion people. That's a big number. If I had a nickel, if I had a nickel for every time, if I had a nickel for every person that has ever lived on the earth, and I laid those nickels down next to each other, side by side, I'd have to make 57 trips around the world until I ran out of nickels. 108 billion nickels. That's a lot of nickels. Now think about it. Out of all those people across all time, 108 billion, God chose Jacob. And God said, Jacob, I love you. And out of all those people across all the world and across all time, God chose you, Christian, and said, I love you. And he showered his mercy upon you and has continued to shower his mercy upon you. And in the ages to come, Ephesians 2, 7 says that you will be seated with him in heavenly places, shining forth as a trophy of his grace and his kindness. Remember the parable of the lost coin in Luke 15? Jesus says that you, you, you were a lost nickel. Okay, well, he said silver coin. But you were a lost nickel. And when God found you and he saved you, he called together the angels in heaven and he said, Rejoice with me, for I have found 
the coin which I had lost. You are that coin. You are a vessel of God's mercy. And all heaven is rejoicing over you and the glorious work that God has done in you and for you. So how do we respond to these gospel truths? How do we respond to this undeserved mercy that God showers down on us? I can tell you that what our first response ought to be. We ought to respond with devotion. We ought to be devoted disciples. A devoted disciple loves God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And this love springs from, from a recognition of the truths we've discussed. That there is a definite distinction, there's a disastrous default, and a divine discrimination. That we are wholly dependent, not on our good works, not on our strong moral fiber, not on our standing in society, not on our standing in the church, not on our academic achievements, not on our success in business, not even on our theological knowledge. No, we are wholly dependent upon the God who says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So don't we owe God all our love, all our mind, all our strength, all our lives? And don't when we come to him every minute, every hour, every day, don't we come with humility and with thankfulness? And ought not our hearts be filled with joy? And understanding these gospel truths ought to also impact how we treat others. If God, think about it, if God has so, so showered down his mercy upon you, if he has saved you from that disastrous default, and that through no merit of your own, he has done this, how much more so ought you to show mercy toward your brother and your sister, upon whom God himself has likewise showered mercy? Think about that for a second, and, and I know we're sparsely populated here, but look to your left or right or in front of you or behind you. God has shown mercy to the Christian sitting next to you or in front of you or behind you. Who then are you to refuse to do likewise, to show mercy to your fellow believer? Another thing you can do is if you have time this week, and it's, Malachi is a short book, so you should have time, read through Malachi. And look at the places where God calls Israel to task. And read how he condemns their attitudes and their actions. Then flip them around. And start doing what God condemns them for not doing. And stop doing what he condemns them for doing. For example, right after the first five verses comes Malachi 6, verse chapter 1. And God says, A son honors his father, and a servant his master then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect? God's telling Israel, I've spared you from sharing in Edom's fate. I've called you my sons and my servants. Now honor me. Respect me. Later in the book, he calls them arrogant. We, from that, should take that we ought to be humble. Later in the book, he tells them that their worship is lackluster, half-hearted. We ought to take from that that we ought to worship the Lord with all our hearts, and sacrifice all we have to him. Go through Malachi with this in mind. How can I not make the mistakes that the people of Israel made? So if you are a chosen one of God, a vessel of God's mercy, you ought to be a devoted disciple, continually striving to honor the Lord and magnify him in everything you do and say. But there may be some of us here sitting here today thinking, I'm one of the dried out crumbling pots. When God judges me, I'm going to be toast. Or maybe you're just not sure. Has God chosen me? 
I really, really don't know. If you're thinking any of these thoughts, I would contend that God is at work in you. He's opening your mind and your heart. The first step on your part is to believe what he's telling you, to admit that what you're already thinking is the truth, and that is that he is God and that you are a sinner and that you stand condemned and if God doesn't do something, you will get what you deserve. You will go to hell. Admit these things to God. Admit that you need him. The good news is that God has done all that is needed. He sent his son Jesus to die on the cross, to bear God's hate in your place, to suffer that disastrous default so that you won't wind up on the wrong side of that semicolon between Malachi 1, 2, and 1, 3. And God raised Jesus from the dead to demonstrate that life in Christ conquers death in sin, to demonstrate that he is in the business of turning crumbled piles of dust and pot shards into beautiful, whole vessels overflowing with his mercy. The Bible promises that if you confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And I urge you, if you have any questions about Jesus, the Bible, or how to receive God's mercy, speak to me, speak to Pastor Mark, or to anyone who can take you into God's word and show you the promises that God has for his children. And my last point this morning here is important for both believers and non-believers to know. And that is that those who have received God's mercy, those who are God's vessels of mercy, ought to look upon the vessels of wrath with love and compassion. Think about it. Vessels of mercy have received a free gift. They didn't earn it. They didn't deserve it. They received the free gift, and they've been told to share it. And they can look around and see so many who need it. In their devotion to God and in, the humility and thank, in their humility and thanksgiving and joy that they have as a result of these gospel truths, vessels of mercy should be all about spreading God's mercy, all about being channels through which God's mercy can be carried to a world in desperate need. I want to close with Paul's words from Romans 9 as he thinks about the unbelievers, the vessels of wrath in his life. That's starting at, at, uh, in verse 1 of Romans 9. Gives the idea, the attitude that we should have as Christians toward those who do not believe. Paul says, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Sorrow, unceasing grief. Paul's desire here is to make known the truth about Jesus and to see others who don't believe, to see them believe. And his desire is so strong. What he's saying here is that he wished, if it were possible, that he could be damned so that others could receive mercy. There is no arrogance in this. There is no self-righteousness. There is only love humility, thanksgiving, and joy for what God has done, and a sincere desire and hope that God will do for others what he has done for us, and that he might be so gracious as to use us to be a part of his work. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this message from Malachi. Father, we thank you for your great mercy that you have showered down upon us, 
what an amazing thing it is that you have chosen us, that you have not condemned us to what we deserve. This morning, we just want to give you all the praise and all the glory. We want to respond in all humility, without arrogance. We want to honor you and praise you and respect you and fear you. Father, we know that we can't do those things apart from the work of your spirit in your heart, in our hearts, the continued work of your spirit in our hearts. So we pray that you would continue to fill us with your spirit, that we might live lives of fear before you, and that we might love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that we might love our neighbor as we love ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.